Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Digital Euro Podcast, the podcast by the Digital Euro Association, which is a European think tank focusing on digital money and specifically the Digital Euro. I'm Sarah Palerovic and I'm one of the executive directors. And today I am joined by Carolyn Berger-Hill and Tina Baker-Taylor. Both are from Circle. It's great to have you both with us today. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for having us. It's great to see you. So today we'll talk about the developments in stablecoin regulation in the recent past since the terror crash, um, urged policymakers to speed up the pace and make distinctions between different um, stablecoin types, for example. We'll talk about the implications of Mika, the competitiveness of different regulatory approaches and developments worldwide. Of course, we would first like to hear from Caroline and Tina to introduce themselves and to then dive into the backgrounds at Circle right now, what's going on right there. But Tina, why don't you start introducing yourself and your current role at Circle? Sure. So I lead our regulatory strategy and our policy efforts in the UK and the EU. I've been with Circle for about six months now, and my team is, is working on our um, European expansion efforts, uh, licensing, and really the growth of Circle's products and services outside of the U.S. And I am Caroline Hill. I'm a director for global policy at Circle. Uh, so I'm based out of the U.S., but look at Uh, global regulatory changes and, and our global posture. Before Circle, I was at the U.S. Treasury for almost a decade, where I looked at issues of illicit finance and money laundering and terrorist financing policy and really saw the uh, potential of digital assets and what those could do uh, in developing countries. I, I, my last job at the Treasury was covering Latin America and Africa, and these countries would frequently come to us at the Treasury Department and ask about their unbanked population and underbanked population and how to bolster their financial sector. And I was able to see firsthand uh, how digital assets could really be a, a force multiplier and an and a aspect of, of change there, uh, which led me to Circle. Really exciting um, to hear from that firsthand experience. And that also, I guess, explains why you're working for Circle now. And um, I think, I mean, both of you are basically the perfect match for today's today's episode. Um, before we get started with that, um, just from a point of interest, what's currently um, going on at Circle? What's the current focus? Um, and we also had the event happening earlier this year. If you could give us an update on that. Sure, absolutely. You know, things are never standing still at Circle, uh, unlike USDC, which uh, does stand still and is stable at the dollar. As for some of our, our listeners who might not know, Circle is the sole issuer of USDC uh, and Eurocoin, which I know, Tina, you and Sarah had a, another podcast just on Eurocoin, which is very exciting. USDC is currently on eight chains with about 50 billion in circulation. And actually, some of our, our more recent exciting announcements is the expansion of USDC on five additional chains uh, to be 13 by the end of this year, 
a big focus at Circle is the interoperability of USDC, and so expanding it onto as many reputable and and performing chains as possible is a priority of ours. We also recently announced a cross-chain bridge uh, within Circle that we have launched uh, to allow uh, users to uh, bridge USDC across the multiple chains that we're on. And then finally, Sarah, you mentioned our conference that happened earlier this year. Uh, we have started a annual conference called Converge really for crypto natives and crypto skeptics and developers and policymakers and regulators and users to come together to explore the future of this technology. And we're really excited about this because we feel that the industry is really moving from the speculative phase to the utility phase here. Some of our announcements that converged this year were the cross-chain bridge that I just mentioned, the new uh, chains that we're going to be on. But we're also a huge priority of, of Circle is some of our Circle impact work. So this last September, we announced Circle U, which is a free crypto literacy program that uh, helps promote digital financial literacy and financial well-being. Uh, but I thought that the conference really demonstrated uh, just the the interest from across uh, the industry, uh, some of the conversations on, on regulatory policy were some of the most active conversations that we have there, really demonstrating just the uh, important moment we're at in terms of regulatory policy, both here in the United States, but also internationally. Wow, that was certainly um, a lot. I'm sure there is even more going on behind the scenes, but especially um, interesting is, of course, that regulation is picked up on and actually has such a big interest in the field currently. I think that really um, 2022 was pivotal in the role of um, stablecoin regulation, um, of course, since Terra Luna, um, and that might be one reason uh, why that was, uh, you know, met with such an interest at the conference that you held earlier at Converge. So you as Circle, of course, also have to do with stablecoin regulation um, on a daily basis. I mean, there is probably hundreds of people working um, on stablecoin regulation, just a Circle. And how would you say general stablecoin regulation is perceived by Circle as, like you said, one of the private um, entity stablecoin issues in the field. We welcome regulation. I can certainly talk about the U.S. aspect, and, and Tina, I'll turn to you for the U.K. US, EU aspect. Um, but we very much welcome regulation, and that's something that we have been committed to uh, since Circle's founding. Our CEO, Jeremy Lair, uh, uh, at the very creation of Circle, was uh, in Washington, D.C. and talking to lawmakers and policymakers there about the future of the industry. And we feel that responsible regulatory framework will really uh, allow this technology to continue to develop and become uh, even more mainstream with adoption. I think I would add to that um, if we take a look back at the Terra Luna uh, meltdown, it, it really proved to a number of regulators around the world that stable coins did need to be brought into the regulatory perimeter. And It also shined a light on how responsible players who have embraced this regulatory first approach um, and a fully reserved model could prevail and serve as uh, basically a, a, a flight to safety. And we saw that happen um, over the course of the summer. But equally, um, as 
regulators were looking at um, different amendments or, you know, potential final rulemakings within legislation. That was um, potentially an unfortunate timing, um, given that some of the language within Mika was, you know, tuned or, you know, tightened up um, and regulation and, and legislation in other areas of the world have also uh, reflected on um, perhaps addressing risks that re are related to, to run on bank situations um, and consumer protection. Ultimately, I think most of these um, fine tuning that uh, policymakers are looking at are probably to the benefit of the industry. But in some cases, I think it, it may create some barriers and obstacles. That's a very interesting take and actually leads us directly into what we saw in stablecoin regulation. You called it um, fine-tuning. Is there a couple of examples that um, both of you could could name here since the Terra Luna meltdown? Sure. So I think if we take a look at uh, the finally agreed uh, MECA legislation, there are a number of areas that, that are still going to be discussed and what are considered level two Uh, discussions. Those are typically at the regulatory level and um, basically form the rulemaking process. So it's the distillation between the legal language and the legislation into kind of practical uh, regulatory language that, that forms um, the supervision and, and oversight regimes. And so within that, there are a number of areas that um, are, are still to be fine-tuned, as I mentioned, but equally during that process over the summer, um, we saw, you know, what I would kind of refer to as a, as a ping-pong back and forth from a number of the member states um, and the commission around some of the language, for example, around transaction caps. So, you know, at the end of June, I think we felt um, fairly confident that those transaction caps were only going to apply very specifically to certain types of payments. Um, that language had uh, received some clarity um, through the, the legal trilogues that took place over the summer. And then there were a couple of kind of last minute tightening up of those, uh, of those clauses, um, which in my opinion, maybe brought that back toward um, an area of a lack of clarity that we kind of started with. So um, I think that, you know, during the level two discussions, some of this fine tuning will, will happen around, um, you know, there are questions around how reserves will be held. There are questions around capital buffers and what they apply to and specifically how they're calculated. Um, and obviously questions around how the transaction caps will be measured um, and certainly the reporting requirements. So those are examples of, you know, the, the fine tuning that happens as um, legislation actually converts into regulation. Uh, Caroline, I think you have a couple of examples as well. Sure, absolutely. In the United States, after the Terra Luna collapse, we were heartened to see, actually, that there was a real understanding of what that meant by policymakers and the administration. And what I mean by that is the industry has spent many, many years educating policymakers on, on digital assets in the community. And 
as a result, I think after Terra Luna, there was not a pendulum swing that all stable coins are bad or or we need to overregulate, but there was a real understanding that this was an algorithmic token that called itself a stable coin, but was in fact not. And we need to responsibly regulate stable coins so that anything that's that calls itself a stable coin, US consumers can trust will be stable. But we don't need to outright ban this technology and we don't need to uh, overregulate in a way uh, because of the Terra Luna crash. And we saw that from members of Congress. We saw that from Secretary Yellen, who testified about Terra Luna. She also noted during her testimony that Tether had lost its peg. And so there was a clear recognition that this was not uh, an indictment against stablecoins writ large, but irresponsibly managed stablecoins. So now what we've seen come out of the United States is true bipartisan efforts to legislate stablecoins. And in fact, I think it's one of uh, the only bipartisan uh, efforts uh, in Congress right now, which is truly remarkable. And this was really set off by the Biden administration, who uh, a year ago tomorrow released a report that said that Congress needed to uh, create a regulatory framework for stablecoins. The United States, unlike the European Union, has taken an approach that first we're going to regulate stablecoins and then future regulation will expand upon that, uh, unlike Mika, which of course is, is very encompassing of all digital assets or, or many digital assets. And so uh, Congress has been working on a, a prudential federal regulation framework for stablecoins uh, that is advancing both through the House Financial Services Committee and the Senate Agriculture Committee. So there are several bills that are currently, uh, have been released or are, are being drafted, and it's unclear which bill will, uh, will, will be the winner, so to speak. Um, and we're still very much waiting to see uh, some final versions of those bills, but we're very optimistic about the focus and again, bipartisan nature that's coming out of the US Congress right now. I think the one thing that I would add to that too, just taking a bit of a macro view is, you know, we've talked before about the the benefits and drawbacks of templating regulation. So taking existing regulatory frameworks and, and potentially trying to bring crypto assets within that or extending um, existing regulatory frameworks uh, to crypto assets versus bespoke models. I think the U.S. is in a really interesting position um, because there there are existing regulatory frameworks that crypto could be brought within, but stable coins, unlike in Europe where we have an existing e-money framework um, that stable coins look a lot like, um, that doesn't exist in the U.S. So the the lens that they're looking at stable coins through is really kind of a bespoke, nuanced lens because they don't have existing e-money. So where the European Union was able to potentially maybe fast track uh, a very comprehensive bill 
they did so referencing existing regulatory regimes. Um, and in some of those cases, and I would argue that stable coins would be one of them, uh, the same risk, same regulation doesn't exactly neatly apply. And so I think that that potentially could create a bit of a competitive um, friction between the US and Europe. And I think that there's also this idea that we need to harmonize the regulatory approach to stablecoins specifically globally and a number of you know standards bodies and, and regulators are calling for this. Um, so we have Europe in this, you know, what could be considered by some as this first mover advantage, but now the US is in a position to actually look at the practical implications of what um, Mika will provide for stablecoins and, and potentially put something in place that allows the freer flow of global value. And I think that's that's interesting. It'll be interesting to watch how that plays out. Thank you for that overview. Um, that was quite a lot that you touched on. But one thing that really stood out to me was how you said that um, because the US is starting from a different point in terms of maybe not a blank paper, but as compared to the Eurozone, certainly has, has less on said paper, basically. We need to take a different like ruler and laid next to them because what often often happens is obviously jurisdictions are compared to where they are um, in terms of regulation and how far they're advancing in it. Um, and then it can easily be said, well, the U.S. just isn't moving as quickly um, as other countries or enter any country, really, any jurisdiction. And on that, there's actually an interesting quote from a U.S. Congress lawmaker. Um, and he said, and I quote, four years ago, if you said Bitcoin, crypto and DeFi, in the halls of Congress, nobody would have known what you were talking about. The progress that's, that has been made in Congress is pretty remarkable. So given what you just said, Tina, um, and Caroline, of course, too, how do you assess this statement? I completely agree. The progress that has been made uh, here in the United States on having those conversations with regulators and policymakers, both formally and informally, have really increased uh, the ability to design these regulatory frameworks in a way that makes sense. This has been time-consuming um, for the industry to do, but I think something that uh, responsible actors in the industry have recognized the need to do. At Circle, we do this both formally and informally. We uh, reply to a, a number of requests for information formally uh, from the Treasury Department to the Commerce Department to the Federal Reserve about uh, our views on digital assets, on CBDCs, on illicit finance, on economic competitiveness, you name it. Um, and I, I really want to take a moment to commend uh, the administration um, and the Federal Reserve and others for putting out these requests for information. The education is a two-way street here. It's We are not uh, pushing on closed doors or, or banging on closed doors, I should say. Um, but there's really a recognition that uh, we should be having these public-private conversations and learning from each other about uh, what the future holds. And so uh, there has been, as I said, a number of, of requests for information. There's a number of um, briefings and, and conversations around um, both you know, the, the business operations of, of Circle, but also Uh, what broader market trends are looking like, uh, what has happened, you know, during this recent crypto winter, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, that's not to say that, that we're done here. Um, the industry and the technology is changing so quickly that there'll still be uh, much to do. But I think, you know, one day in the not so distant future, we won't be thinking about the technology behind digital assets and we won't be thinking about how blockchains work. We'll just be using them. You know, I, for instance, grew up with the internet and email and I don't really understand why I can email a Hotmail or Gmail account from from my email address. Uh, I just know that it works. And I think that's the future of, of digital assets. We won't be thinking around uh, you know, why this chain, how this chain differs from another chain. We'll just know that I can send money fast, cheap, I can program it, I can build on top of blockchains uh, without understanding the, the technology behind it. But until we are at that point, um, you know, this education is necessary. And, and frankly, it's also necessary to put in a regulatory framework that uh, makes sense, resp- fosters responsible innovation uh, and protects consumers. Yeah, I would I would add to that that um, when you look at USDC as a you know four year old uh, product uh, back in its proof of concept you know moments, um, there really was this vision that if you look at the the US dollar today, it props up a lot of additional economic activity, and so if you were able to create. Uh, build and and widely adopt a stablecoin that uh, was you know issued by a responsible, trusted, you know, regulated entity. Um, then potentially that stablecoin can th- be you know the the foundation to to build additional economic activity on top of um, or within. And I think that's the major shift between. Web 2 um, and building financial products on top of the internet versus the Web 3 environment where we will, where we will be able to uh, build financial services within the environment and, and have them be, you know, uh, technology agnostic and um, not, you know, plug on top features like we have today. So, you know, that interoperability and that multi-chain strategy that that Circle has basically seeks to, you know, facilitate that exchange of value at the speed of the internet. Um, But what does that actually mean? So when you're looking through this regulatory lens, you know, that we've seen huge adoption. And when I say huge, I mean, in context of that we still have a lack of clarity in a number of places, but with traditional payment services providers who or remittances services that are actually disrupting themselves. Um, and one of those great examples that I love to tell people about is MoneyGram. So MoneyGram has this huge network of very traditional storefronts, kiosks and airports and small towns around the world. And uh, they pay out remittances. So let's say you're a student um, and you've gone to France and your parents send you money or, you know, you're in, I don't know, Berlin and you're sending money back to your family in Bangladesh, you would walk into a MoneyGram and receive the cash from traditionally a wire transfer. Um, Today, enabled by the Stellar Network, you are able to send and receive USDC across Stellar and walk into a MoneyGram today and cash out. And that's really, really powerful. Um, And that um, 
I would argue potentially is creating net new economic activity because the cost of this is incredibly different. So last week I was at um, a policy event and the uh, head of policy for Stellar was describing that in Colombia, um, the partnership that they're uh, undertaking, the cost for a remittance using the Stellar network is 1.6% of the transaction. The cost using a traditional wild transfer is like 5.7%. That is a massive difference. And so then what, what do those recipients do with the savings that they have and what opportunities are created? So, you know, I think that we're, we're entering this period and we're shifting from the speculative um, time within crypto assets into this more utility period of time. But that regulatory structure is one of the things that will enable some of those traditional players um, to consider using stablecoins as a settlement asset. And once that happens at scale, I think that's going to be materially impactful. Right. So the calibration of those laws are um, definitely going to guide the path forward in the developments that you both have just described um, if we wanted to reach a point where we don't even think about, am I using stable coins right now? Um, am I using a different type of uh, means of payment money? Really, um, if we look at it from the perspective of the calibration of stable coin regulation um, around the world affecting the competitiveness. So um, taking your example, for example, Tina, now, where you said being able to send money via MoneyGram to another country, then being able to take that money out of the account currently, depending on how regulation shapes out, do you think that there will be massive benefits or massive differences worldwide in those calibrations? Or are they all forced into more or less having a similar calibration because they don't want to be, quote unquote, left behind? Yeah, I think that's one of the issues that we're looking at at the moment around global harmonization. So, you know, obviously, if if all the countries around the world could get behind one school of thought, then, you know, that would just be a Christmas miracle, right? It's, uh, it's pretty unlikely to happen. And, you know, countries develop regulatory structures that are a reflection of, you know, their their cultural norms and the way their, their laws um, are structured. So there's always going to be differences. I think in the remittance space, um, one of the things that is, I think, powerful about the um, example I just gave is that those are, you know, traditional players partnering with kind of emerging um, digitally native solutions. Um, and so, you know, when I said they're disrupting themselves, you know, it, it, it kind of goes back to that Kodak moment. You know, do you continue to evolve and, and innovate? Um, and what's what's in it for you if you do? So if you take a look at the, the cost per transaction that I just gave you, I mean, everyone receives efficiencies of speed. So you're moving from, you know, a T plus two environment into a T zero environment with instant settlement. Um, that's great for MoneyGram. Um, you're able to reduce the cost and obviously pass that on to the consumer. Um, so, you know, again, that's, that's great for your competitive advantage. If you're looking at countries, I think, you know, attracting um, new growth 
is is something that you know we're seeing around the world um the desire to you know increase gdp um and you know potentially bring new opportunity um into you know your country and your tax structure etc and especially with um the level of kind of geopolitical friction that we're seeing right now um and the impact that that's having on the everyday consumer's cost of living going up um inflation going up you know everything is more expensive then you know the ability to reduce friction bring costs down um and increase the velocity of that flow of of money around the world i think only has benefits i do think that for jurisdictions that don't readily see that um there could be an opportunity for you know we talk a lot about regulatory arbitrage i think this could could, could lead to competitiveness arbitrage and so you know if you're going to have countries that um can't or won't um develop policies that enable that fund flow to to move through them and whatever that currency may be um especially within this decentralized finance environment then i think what you might see as as you look at you know money moving around the world um that there could be these you know competitiveness moats where that people just kind of jump over those jurisdictions and then they're left out of um those growth opportunities because they're not allowing that free flow of of money through their systems um so so yeah i think i think that that is a risk I couldn't agree more that that's a risk um, and certainly would disadvantage consumers. And from a government perspective, bringing these companies under your regulatory regime is advantageous. You don't want companies to go literally offshore or figuratively offshore and continue to provide services to your, your citizens without you having some regulatory guidance and structure around that um so you know purely from a from a consumer protection and a financial stability standpoint determining what these what these prudential frameworks should be are are highly highly important there's been a lot of work done already on how to regulate from an illicit finance standpoint um those standards have been um, designed and agreed upon at the financial action task force um, and have given countries, uh, again, standards to model legislation and regulation around. Um, and it's now incumbent upon countries to uh, take up those standards and implement those domestically. And I think we've seen a number of countries do that. The United States has done it already, for example. Uh, but we need to continue to see countries uh, regulate and supervise for illicit finance risks to ensure that um, you know we're not allowing illicit actors to take advantage of the digital asset ecosystem. Uh, I'll note that uh, illicit finance is still very much a challenge in traditional finance as well. Um, so while it is also in the digital asset space, uh, we also see illicit financial flows move through uh, formal uh, financial institutions, large financial institutions that we all know and use. Um, so this is not a, a challenge unique to digital assets, but it's one that the digital asset community needs to continue to to think about. Definitely true, and this is 
also in line with uh, what we at the DIA deem important, hence our report on stable coins um, and the design features. And it's also a lot talking about the international effort in yeah, aligning um, stable coin um, design exactly for the reason of that you named Tina, the regulatory arbitrage that could otherwise happen. So in the interest of getting your view on the future, kind of, and we already touched about that on this a little bit when we talked about stablecoin um, bills in the U.S., when do you expect a stablecoin bill to actually pass in the U.S.? Well, that's the million-dollar question, or, or I should say the million USDC question. Um, we remain hopeful uh, that Congress acts on this soon. I think that they understand uh, what's at risk here if regulation isn't passed. We are, uh, as I'm sure listeners are aware, going into our midterm elections here at the start of November uh, with a new Congress coming in in January. So I think that there'll be a lot of eyes on Congress. You know, at, at times legislation moves between elections and, and when a new Congress is, is seated. At times legislation moves during that period. Uh, but if not, we are hopeful and will continue to urge lawmakers in Congress to act in the next Congress starting in 2023. All right. Tina, any takes? Yeah, well, we've seen quite a lot of progress made. Um, and when, you know, I look back uh, to some of those, the earliest bills um, that were put forward, you know, we've come quite a long way in the U.S. And I think that is an absolute uh, demonstration of those policymakers really digging in and educating themselves around um, the design, the reserve structure, you know, the consumer protection um, elements that, you know, were, were of great concern and I think that are, are becoming potentially more understood and therefore managing the risk is better understood. Um, I would have loved to have seen a bill pass this year. I, I think that's very unlikely to happen, obviously, now. Um, but I, I do uh, personally have some confidence that this has become a priority and, and will probably um, be one of the first things that's tackled next year. You know, obviously, um, with Micah moving into the um, approval and implementation phase, I think that does provide some impetus for other jurisdictions to um take swift action. Um, I also think it provides other jurisdictions with, you know, a, a potential playbook um, to assess uh, if, if they agree with everything um, and all of the approaches that are within MICA um, and how that aligns um, to their national uh, priorities. We have in the UK the Financial Services Markets Bill that is currently um, being debated in Parliament. Um, it is in the committee stage, um, and they are very swiftly moving through an enormous bill, which was um, originally designed to, um, I don't want to say deregulate, but maybe reassess um, some of the regulatory obligation um, that the UK was subject to as a member of the European Union and post-Brexit, um, revisiting some of those regulatory structures to see if the UK um, can be more competitive. So 
in a bill designed to actually, you know, in some ways deregulate, it is also being used as the vehicle to bring crypto assets into the regulated perimeter. Um, and a number of amendments have been passed last week um, that expanded what was initially only stable coins to be brought into the perimeter um, to other crypto assets. And so we'll expect a consultation later this year on, on what those um, areas will be specifically and how. But um, uh, last week on the 27th, um, the bill committee did agree to bring digital settlement assets, essentially stable coins, within the regulatory perimeter. So that is absolutely definitely happening. Um, the committee has a number of sessions scheduled for this week. Um, and then I would expect that that bill will probably go to the House of Lords within the next week or two. Um, so that's moving quite quickly, even amidst the disruption that we have had within the UK government over the past couple of months. So I think that, you know, this, this is a nod to um, jurisdictions really kind of taking a look at the opportunity and, and not wanting to miss the boat. Um, Caroline, I know you've, you have some information on some other jurisdictions around the world that are actively swiftly moving forward. As you noted, Tina, I think that the movement from Mika um, and now from the UK and US has also galvanized other countries. Um, we have seen quite positive uh, movement in Japan, for instance, on stablecoin legislation. Uh, and Singapore, the regulatory authority just put out a consultation on regulating stablecoins. And so I think other jurisdictions are taking note of the focus on stablecoin regulation out of the US, the UK, and the EU, and are are now addressing it similarly uh, under their own regulatory perimeters. Um, so I think this trend will continue in 2023 and 2024, we'll continue to see countries introduce, refine, uh, and and hopefully pass. Uh, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, hopefully pass legislation around stable coins. Um, and ultimately, as I think Tina and I both mentioned at the start, this will expand market adoption, user adoption, and, and protect consumers. Awesome. So that was my last question for today's session. We'll, of course, make sure to listen back in um, in 2023 and see how the developments uh, actually hopefully did take place. Um, and then Tina will make sure to send you a little well well guessed or we'll come up with something uh, in the meantime for sure um that will be interesting to to watch surely and in the meantime hopefully we'll be able to hear a lot more from coming out from circle of course and we're always happy to welcome you back here um in the digital europe podcast um as a format of course Until then, how could listeners reach out to both of you? Thanks, Sarah. I've enjoyed chatting with you today, and it's always a pleasure to work with Dia. I look forward to uh, continuing to hear from listeners. Uh, we, uh, Tina and I are both uh, frequently at, at digital assets conferences and panels, and of course we have our annual Converge, which we'll have in, in 2023, date and location TBD. Uh, but we look forward to, I look forward to seeing Uh, listeners and, and digital assets enthusiasts uh, in all of those places. Yeah, Sarah, it's great to join you. So, you know, the next time I come, I think I should get a special badge or something as a frequent flyer on the podcast. Um, 
if people would like to reach out to me directly, if you have any questions about what's happening in the UK or Europe or what's happening at Circle, I'm on Twitter and my handle is at Tina Taylor. Um, you can um, obviously find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, and uh, definitely follow the, the Circle um, Twitter handle which has now recently changed to just very simply at Circle, um, where you will find all of the updates around uh, what we're doing, um, both as a company and related to any of our policy advocacy initiatives and activity. All the mentioned links and resources will, of course, be also listed in the show notes. And that being said, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Digital Euro podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Um, make sure to reach out to the Digital Euro Association via Twitter, LinkedIn, or our website to stay up to date with the latest news and discussions around CBDCs and stablecoins worldwide. Make sure to tune in next time and join us in the quest to shape the future of digital money.